You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a podcast about war. All episodes contain strong language and graphic descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. There's a line that Manny Mendoza almost never crosses. He gets close sometimes, but... I won't say it while you're recording. Okay. Yeah. There's the line. Do you want to stop the recorder? Sure. Yeah, you want me to? Yeah, stop it. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 4. A Soldier's Heart. on now so the first thing is let me take you back to sangin for a minute it was 2011 and i was in one of those hot mud brick rooms where the marines slept at patrol base fires i was trying to interview each of the guys when they had a few minutes between patrols and sleeping all right go i'm corporal mendoza Westlaco, texas i'm 20 years old all right try again a little bit louder Mendoza was shirtless, and unlike some of the guys, he hadn't thinned out from the malnutrition. I was cutting into his chill time, and he wasn't all that excited about it. He was also nervous, and listening back to the tape, I don't know whether to cringe or laugh at my stage directions. I'm Corporal Manuel Mendoza. I am Corporal Manuel Mendoza. I'm 20 years old, and I'm from Weslaco, Texas. Great. Mendoza barely looked back when he left Weslaco to join the Marines. He earned the rank of corporal and became a team leader, responsible for half the squad in one of the most dangerous combat zones in all of Afghanistan. And he took his job seriously. You gotta be on top of everything. You gotta be thinking about rear security, front security, everything. You gotta be pretty much thinking for your team. He still had the wide eyes and bashful charm of a teenager. Everything was new and exciting for him, but it was also horrific. I wasn't expecting the blood bones dangling everywhere. I wasn't expecting that. I was hoping I wouldn't have to see that, but I did. Sangin was Mendoza's first deployment. And by the time we met, he'd been on the ground for four months. He'd already seen more than enough. He decided to get out. Dream scenario, like 10 years from now, just having a home, a family, and a job. I guess, is that what would be considered the American dream? Yeah, I think so. I think so, too.
Now it's March 2021. Almost 10 years have gone by since we talked in Sangin. Mendoza's back living in Texas, and I'm here to find out how his plans shook out. How close has he gotten to that American dream? The home, the family, the job. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff we can do here. We'll go, we'll start over at the engine, so. Mendoza's a volunteer firefighter now, among other things. He's on shift tonight. It's about 11 p.m. and Tommy and I are here at the firehouse. He's showing us around. The very first thing I do, coming in here, number one is figure out where your assignment is, because you don't actually just come in and uh, just jump on the engine like you're good. No, you need an assignment. Tonight, Mendoza's on nozzle, a typical new guy job. And uh, what that means is that in any case we respond to a fire, I would be the first one to grab a hose. So you keep your stuff in here ready to go at all times? Yes. Usually in the movies, you might see that they have their stuff outside. No, we, we get dressed inside. In other words, jump in, drive. Get dressed on the way. That saves like two to three minutes. That's plenty of time to help save somebody. He's a volunteer, but the gig is demanding. It's at least 20 hours a week, and he often has to spend the night, which means he has to head straight to his other job as a civil engineer in the morning, what you might call his real job. 10, 15 minutes. So this is pretty intense. This is not just like, you know, something you do just because you have some spare time to volunteer. This is like a huge learning curve with a ton of real responsibility. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And you love it. Yeah. Learning. It's fucking awesome, dude. Learning is fucking legit. The boyish enthusiasm I remember from Sangin has not diminished. But, yeah, do you ever yeah. take a day off? Yeah. Do you sleep? Yeah. How often do you sleep? Right now I'm trying to stick to go to sleep at 10, wake up at 3. Because gym. You gotta get that gym in. It's getting close to midnight and we need to let Mendoza crash. We're going to be around for a few days, so we make plans to meet up at his place on one of his nights off to talk more. But we can't leave without seeing the fire truck. Yeah. This, right. is, this is what every little boy's dream is, to stand on top of that ladder. You want to go up there? Um, no. You can go up there. You sure? Okay. We climb up onto the top. Be very careful. Watch your head. We're probably 10 feet off the ground, crouched beneath the ceiling. One of the most important things to know about this thing is that little lever right there. What? Mendoza shows us how it works, but after a few minutes, he gets a little confused. Where was it when we got here? Uh, I don't remember. He said it was set up for rescue. He flips the lever back and forth a couple times. God damn it, I can't even remember anymore. What is this? Did I break the fire truck? We're gonna no. delete this part. <laughs> uh, I just can't remember. Do no, me, I do remember. Do you want me to YouTube it? <laughs> no, we can use reasoning here. I just use YouTube. YouTube. Rescue setting versus cannon setting. <laughs> when we finally meet up with Mendoza at his apartment, he's watching Training Day, the Denzel Washington film, for maybe the hundredth time. King Kong ain't got shit on me! He lives in a tidy one-bedroom in a suburban complex about a half hour north of Houston. The decorations are sparse. He's got a poster near the kitchen of retired Marine General Jim Mattis in the style of a religious icon, complete with a halo and a grenade. 
Underneath, there's a little shelf where I notice a copy of I Am Malala. And there's a knee-high stack of engineering textbooks piled by a small computer desk. Back in Sangin, Mendoza told me he wanted to go to college, and he followed through on that plan. He earned a degree in civil engineering from Texas A&M in 2019. Then he moved here to the Woodlands for a job with a construction firm. In less than two years, he's already worked his way up to manager. He tells me he even bought a house, just not for himself, for his mom back in the Rio Grande Valley where he grew up. I was uh, born in Weslaco, Texas, which is deep, deep south Texas, the very, very south. It's about a stone toss away from Mexico. Um, it was boring. I didn't like it. He's the youngest of six with four sisters and a brother. His parents are from Mexico. They came to the U.S. for work before Mendoza was born. They always went job to job. I was working general labor. Everybody had to pitch in, even the little kids. I got my first job when I was like 13. Yeah, 13. Uh, we found a job for me out in the field because I couldn't work the factories because I was too young and they had like laws or whatever. <laughs> Child labor laws? Yeah. yeah. One, of, one of the major advancements of the 20th century? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I was working out in the fields where, you know, they, nobody ever came to inspect. Every summer, the entire family went north to pick cherries. Where up north? Michigan. Yeah. All the way from West Dakota, Michigan. That's basically all the way from the Mexican border to the Canadian border almost. Pretty much, yeah. Wow. So there was work up there. Uh, the pay was good. And even though it was seasonal uh still provided some decent amount of income for the summer times so you all went up there as a family yeah in your family car or how did you get up there yeah big old trucks that we used to buy up north whatever was a good deal and whatever could hold all of us wow one of the coolest ones was this big old brown van that we had i think it was yeah it was a big old brown van we had a table in the back and we could all kind of just lay down we would all just kind of enjoy the day or two-day trip up to Michigan. They lived in migrant housing provided by the owners of the fruit farms. They were usually out in the field, kind of just out of the way, um, kind of hidden because, I mean, obviously a lot of us were, a lot of them were illegals. A lot of the workers were illegal or undocumented, whatever. Um, so, yeah, they were kind of, we were kind of in secluded areas in the farmers' fields. It was pretty much a shed, with sometimes with running water and electricity, other times not not that. Um, I think the worst one we stayed in had, a, or had an outhouse, like no, no running water, just shithouse in the back. Out in the orchards, Mendoza usually got the little kid jobs. I remember I had a um, tennis racket. I'd scoop up all the bad cherries running behind this tractor, this piece of equipment. That's pretty cool. So then did you get to keep the money that you made for that? Or did your family all pull the money together and use it to live for the rest of the year? Uh, that was for clothes. Uh, well, for me, for my clothes for and whatever I needed for the coming school year. He has fond memories of this time in his life. The long road trips, the people he got to meet, and especially the sense that he was helping his family get by. But there was a cost for him. That didn't help out with my education at all, I'll tell you that. Because you would come in sometimes you know, a month or two late. To school? Yeah. In the fall? Mm-hmm. The super student who showed us around the firehouse and excelled at college wasn't always so hungry for education. I hated school. Uh, I despised it. Didn't like it. And in my head, I always had that mentality of, I'm going to go in the military. 
If he ever had any doubts, he says they vanished one autumn day in 2001. I knew right away that I wanted to join the military at uh, 9-11. I was 10 years old. Yeah, that's when I absolutely knew I was going to join. This isn't the first time I've heard this story. We play Mendoza some of our interview from Sangin. Join the Marine Corps because I'll never forget September 11th. I'll never forget the what happened in New York. And I'll never forget um, people that were hurt, people that died. I love my country. I'm a patriot straight up. Like, even though I'm Mexican, I love, I love America because we got a lot of great things in our country. And I like to... I feel like I have, I have a debt, a debt, a debt, debt. There we go. Okay. To pay. Try, try to speak in a little bit louder of a voice. Just <laughs> not like shouting, not just whispering, but somewhere in the middle. Just a strong, That's strong voice. You know? I feel like I got a debt to the United States because I have such a great life back home. I got my family. I got, I had a good education, you know, so I felt like I needed to pay that dead. You you busted out laughing when you heard I got a good education. Yeah. You had like a full well, belly laugh. So why is that? Yeah, because it contradicted what I just said. Yeah. So why do you think you told me that back then? Why do you think you said you had a good education back then? I didn't know any better. And I think subconsciously what I was thinking was that compared to the Afghan kids, that's what I had. Yeah. A great education. Mendoza worked three jobs in high school. He steered clear of the drugs and the gangs that he says were everywhere, and he kept his grades up enough to stay on the football team and graduate. All I was worried about was finishing up so I can, you know, go ahead and get the hell out of here, out of the valley, and go fight. Boredom and testosterone, curiosity about the big wide world, romantic ideals about the greatest adventure of them all, war. It's a powerful cocktail for a small town boy. And it leads often enough to the military. But there are a lot of other roads to adventure. There are a lot of other ways to get the hell out. What I want to know is why Mendoza was so eager to fight. What did that feeling in, like, in your body, this desire to fight, what did that feel like? I guess it wasn't a feeling. I guess my, just, my imagination just took me places with what I could do and what I wanted to do. Because I had no, really, no real way of feeling what combat might be like. His imagination was fueled by war movies, video games, and books about battles. Seventh grade was the first book I ever read, like actual, it wasn't a Goosebumps book, it wasn't um, some Captain Underpants, whatever. It was <laughs> a legit novel, and it was A Soldier's Heart. The book's about a 15-year-old boy named Charlie who lies about his age so he can enlist and fight in the American Civil War. When he comes home from the war, he's walking with a cane and pissing blood, and he's tortured by the horrors he witnessed. He has what we now call PTSD, but back then it was sometimes called soldier's heart. In the final scene, Charlie sits down by a river to have a picnic. He takes out some bread and cheese, a chunk of roast beef, some coffee, and a pistol. 
It's not clear whether Charlie kills himself, but it's definitely not a happy ending. It may sound strange that someone would read that story and want to go to war, but Mendoza did. So what year did you enlist in the Marines? 2009. Okay, so you really are what they call a surge baby. Yeah. The surge babies are a generation of military recruits who joined during the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan, when tens of thousands of extra troops were deployed to try to turn the wars around. The Iraq surge began in 2007 and was ordered by President George Bush. If we increase our support at this crucial moment and help the Iraqis break the current cycle of violence, we can hasten the day our troops begin coming home. The Afghanistan surge began in about 2010 and was ordered by President Barack Obama. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. Most of Third Squad were surge babies. For Mendoza, becoming a Marine changed his entire sense of identity. You said, and this really stuck out to me at the time, you said, I love my country even though I'm Mexican. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, why did he feel like he had to make that clarification? Probably because of that, the whole migrant thing. Growing up, my mom said, you're Mexican. She used to get mad at us for speaking English in the house. Um... So, so it was weird learning English. That's probably why my, my English is a little bit off at times. Even though you, you tell me to speak louder, I just, sometimes I get confused with English words. Oh, great. So now I was actually yes. abusing a, a bilingual kid who was, yeah. you know, oh, great. Now I feel really great about myself. That's awesome. Um, no, so growing up, it was like, no, you're Mexican. That's it. Like you have the cactus on your forehead. But at that time, do you think that you felt American? I mean, because again, like what's what's interesting about that is that in that clip that in that clip that we played, you're talking about how powerful of an impression 9-11 made on you. Mm-hmm. You're saying, I love my country, even though I'm a Mexican, but you clearly felt that that attack as an American. Mm-hmm. Yes. So absolutely. Tell, me, tell me a little bit about what it was like to have that split identity and and how that identity has grown or changed over the years since then i want to say that once i joined the marine corps it was like no you're you've chosen your identity there like you you are american 100 percent now teenage mendoza didn't hesitate to claim that 100 percent american identity any more than he hesitated to leave westlaco in the dust but for his mom his departure was a heavy blow he tried to soften it the way boys often do by lying. I did something really fucked up because I didn't want to make her worried. So I told her I was an electrician while I was in the Marine Corps. What? Yeah. I didn't tell her I was infantry until the night before I left. That's a big Fuck. lie. <laughs> yeah. But it's my mom, man. I, just, I didn't want to fucking put so much stress on her. He came clean while he was home in Westlaco on leave from Camp Pendleton. He'd already been in the Marines for two years. Now his battalion was gearing up for the Sangin deployment. It was at night. Uh, my flight was at like two in the morning or something like that, or some ridiculous hour, but it was dark. I remember the only light in the house was on was the kitchen. I told him, oh, uh, it's time to go. Like, Minnesota's here to take me, my sister's here to take me to the, at the airport. 
and that's when I told him. I was like, Mom, so I'm not actually an electrician, and uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be on my way to Afghanistan within the next week. She's like, Ay, mijo, like, why? Like, why, why did you do this? My dad, he had just suffered a stroke. And I remember, oh God, man. I remember him standing outside the front porch, the light on. And the shadows like were casting over his face. Like you couldn't see his full face, but you could just see the figure of his face and his glasses and he had a cane and his left side was just hanging. He could barely hold himself up. And he was just standing as best he could to look at me. Look at the car. See as I was going away. And I know my mom was crying in the kitchen. So I, I can't, that, that image doesn't escape me as my dad, as I'm driving away, looking back, as my dad watches me go away. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not long after Mendoza told his family the truth, he deployed to Afghanistan with 3rd Squad. When we sat down to talk one-on-one at patrol base fires back in 2011, it was obvious he took his team leader responsibilities very seriously. He was putting a ton of pressure on himself. I love my Marines. Those are my boys. They got a lot of things going for them, and I just don't want anything to happen to them. I want to keep them as safe as I possibly can, and then what I'd like to consider the most, probably one of the most dangerous places on Earth. When 3rd Squad went out on patrol, the guys walked in single file, with a Marine at the front sweeping for IEDs. As a team leader, Mendoza didn't want to leave anything to chance. So he walked behind the sweeper on every patrol if he could. It's the position the 3rd Squad Marines called point. Another thing I notice is that you've been up front a lot. Tell me about why you like to be up front behind the sweeper. You got to lead by example and... I like to tell my sweeper where to go because he's a pretty good, he's a good sweeper. But like sometimes, you know, the the complacency starts to kick in and they like to take the easy routes. I like to go the hard way. I like to go all the way around because that's where we're least likely to get hit by anything, run into anything. It's kind of reckless, but I like to be up front because if I'm the second one through, Most likely, I'll be the one to step on a pressure plate, and nobody else behind me will step on one. When I interviewed him in Sangin, June 12th was fresh on Mendoza's mind. Worst day of my life. That was definitely a reality check. That was the first day my whole team was in front of me. And that was literally the first day they were ever in front of me. And the one day that I let them walk in front of me is the one day that we uh, run into an IED. That was the day of 3rd Squad's mass casualty when they ran into a cluster of IEDs just outside of patrol base fires. The day that Joshua McDaniels died. But you must know that you didn't hit that ID because you weren't up in front. I mean, If I would have been up front and somebody else wouldn't, got, wouldn't be missing legs right now, somebody else might be alive. I trade places with him anytime. With O'Brien or McDaniels, I trade places with him anytime. Here in Mendoza's apartment, photos of McDaniels, O'Brien, and Dutcher look down at us from a shelf in the corner. So, who have you talked to about, you know, back in Sangin, I asked every one of you guys, I said, what are you going to tell your friends and family when you come home? And, and I didn't say, you know, who are you going to talk to? But now I'd like to know who, who have you learned that you can open up to? And when you do find someone who you think you can open up to, what, what do you talk about? We go through basically levels, I guess a vetting process, if you will, for each person. And then we got to meet certain criteria for, for me uh, when it comes to talking, the depth of conversation in which we're having. I think one of my favorite tests is you're holding a conversation 
the, per- the other person gets distracted. They come back and then you change the subject. And then if they flow with the new subject, they're just like, then I'm just like, oh, okay. You didn't care what I was saying just now before you got distracted by that butterfly. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Then. So you actually do that with f- new friends, love interests, family, who, who, who have you applied that test to? Everybody. That's pretty ingenious. Everybody really. Hardly anyone passes the test. He tells me about one particular failure. I got to that point, like in the relationship, like we started dating and I was going to open up to her and I had a picture of McDaniels in my glove compartment. And, um, she so happened to go into my glove compartment for some reason, one reason or another. She opened up my glove compartment, saw McDaniels picture there. She looks at it. She's like, Oh, who's this? Like, Oh, uh, that's McDaniels. Uh, just one of the, one of the guys that we actually lost. She goes, Oh, that's depressing. Just throws it back in there, slams the fucking thing closed. It's like, shit. We're done. You know, she failed the test, man. Even if he manages to find someone who passes the initial test, he's still not in the clear. It sucks because you find the connection. You're like, fuck yeah. Like, Oh dude, like, Let's hang out again. But then it just kind of, that's where it ends. So right when it gets good, it dies. Why does it die? Uh, because, I mean, I, I, fuck, man, I want to talk more and I get excited. And yeah. And then, and, 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 and yeah, man, I just jump the gun. I'm, you freak I'm making out? the adjust. Yeah. You feel I'm like making, you freak them out. Yeah. So yeah, romantically, it sucks. Nowadays, it just comes off as desperate. Like, oh, like I'm, I'm excited that I can talk to you this way, but that's thirsty. Hmm. Thirsty, desperate. Yeah. God, but you're not like desperate to get in bed with someone. You're desperate to find someone who you can actually be yourself with and actually be real with. I mean, that's not. Yeah, dude. That's not like when we talk about men being desperate or women being desperate, we're usually talking about a sexual thing or like someone who just badly needs like like a needy person. Mm-hmm. But your desperation is actually like for the kind of connection that makes a relationship worth having. Yeah. I'm eager, eager to have a meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm thirsty for. Have you talked to therapists at all over the years? Nah. Do I need a professional? No, just somebody who cares. What is it that you want to talk about? If somebody would be willing to listen. Dutcher McDaniels. I mean, let, let's, let's talk about it if you, if we can. And also before we do this, I just want to make sure that I tell you and that you know that you have the wheel. If things get too intense, we can take a break. If you really don't want to talk about something, that's totally your call. I am maybe going to push you a little bit to, to explore some difficult territory because that's what people need to hear. That's what makes this so important. But you know, if ever things are are going into a place that you think would be unsafe for you and not good for you, then Tell me and, and we'll, we'll hit the brakes. Okay. It's not easy to watch Mendoza struggling with this. He's clenching his fists and taking shallow breaths. I'm going to be extremely vulnerable here. Uh, that's, that's what I foresee. I'm trying to prepare for that. And right now I'm kind of feeling it in my heart. And what's really affecting it is the fact that it will be 
on record and people will know. And that's not something I generally share. I don't really share it with anybody. So, yeah, dude. Talking about those moments is reliving them. Maybe it's just me. I don't like to consider myself being, you know, better than somebody at anything. But what I think I'm pretty good at is empathy, feeling, feeling perspectives, feeling others' emotions. Um, that also translates to memories being pretty vivid. So whenever I share that, You just feel everything. You relive everything. Feel it all again. Remember the smell, the sounds, the taste. First things you saw, last things you saw. And then the in-betweens, sometimes that are just flashes. And the natural response is to cry. And I do. So right now I'm kind of reliving some of them in my head. Mendoza takes a few seconds to compose himself. The one that's really scarring is uh, O'Brien. We had just come back from patrol. But I just remember I was sick. And I was just, just shitting like there was no tomorrow. And I was I was in the restroom, just shitting water, and I hear the explosion. And a couple of seconds later I see the squad run. And then Matelski asked me, like, hey, are you good to go? Like, I look him in the eyes like I got my pants down. I'm shitting right now. Like, no, I'm not good. It's like, okay. And they take off without me. Third squad rushes out of the compound gates to help. But it was too late. Nicholas O'Brien had been killed by an IED. And third squad came back. And uh, we got called back out to secure the site. It's told security overnight. And in the morning, pick up whatever we could of Nick. That is got to be the most depressing, one of the most depressing times of my life. Because as soon as the sun comes up, and we're out there looking for pieces, and we found them everywhere. All over the place. In the ditch. The trees. Like right. At eye level. When you start looking higher. You start seeing pieces of boot. Pieces of trousers. Pieces of meat. Flesh. So we looked for. We kept looking for what we could find. We had trash bags, just 
black trash bags. Picking his stuff up, picking him up. We had gloves on. Doesn't help. It didn't help with the smell. It didn't help with... You can still feel it. Still feel. You can still feel the chunks. After a certain point, we just gave up. We were like, no, we're done. We're done. We're done looking for this. We shouldn't be out there doing it. We... But it's gotta be us. It should be us. It should have been us. feels wrong to talk about this what what feels wrong about it feels disrespectful to the parents to Nick towards my squad mates my platoon it doesn't it's really hard because again the empathy I'm starting to feel what they might they might think once they hear about this and I care about what they think I care I care about them I understand Mendoza's concerns. I also worry that describing the ugliest moments of these Marines' lives, including the moments of their violent deaths, could be disrespectful or profane, like an invasion of the privacy of the dead and of their family's grief. Just so you know, we contacted the families of the deceased Marines to let them know what was going to be in this podcast. Unfortunately, it comes down to this. If we want to show you the reality of war, we can't shield you from the most horrific moments. And for Mendoza, those moments remain just as vivid now as they were then. What does it feel like in your body when the flashes come back? Like I'm there? Best way to describe it is every emotion that you've ever felt, just try to put that into one feeling. Like you're feeling all of that at the same time. If you can recall the, the one time you knew that you were in love or the most scared you've ever been in your entire life, the most apprehensive you've ever been in your entire life, the most tired you've ever been in your entire life, all of that, condense it down and feel it all at the same time. So that's what I feel. And then Doubt. Or you start wondering what you could have done different. That what if. And you start thinking, why are you alive? Why am I alive? And that leads to, that leads to other doors. So when that doubt creeps in and that set of what ifs comes up, What's the big what if for you? This one big what if. I've only ever shared this with 
few people. I don't know. I don't think I can do it. I won't say it while you're recording. Okay. Yeah. There's the line. Do you want to stop the recorder? Sure. Yeah, you want me to? Yeah, stop it. We'll be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While the recorder's off, I tell Mendoza why I decided to return to the story of Third Squad after a decade. I tell him I think we've done a poor job of talking about the war since 9-11. And to me, the silence seems dangerous. We sit quietly for a few minutes. And then Mendoza says, okay, let's talk. Hey, I want to thank you for being willing to talk to us about any of this. I think that this requires a kind of courage that's actually harder to find and more rare than the kind of courage that you need to step into a minefield or go rush toward a firefight. Yeah, it's pretty hard. It's a very hard thing to do for me. It's hard emotionally. It's hard uh, thinking about 
what your squad will say, what they'll think of you. Will it change? Well, if it does, well, there's still nothing I wouldn't do for, for my guys. So, maybe even if they hate me for this, I'll still love them. He takes a few deep breaths. Then he tells me about the day Dutcher died. So we overworked our sweepers to the point where they were exhausted. So when you're exhausted you and stressed, there's only so much you can take, so they needed rest. And um, so other people started sweeping. Dutcher being the guy that he was, was happy to do it, even though and it was the most dangerous spot. It was almost guaranteed. It wasn't necessarily a matter of if, it was more when. When you would find that ID and be unlucky enough to have set it off. But he stepped up anyways. Why? Because he was just the most selfless guy to ever walk this earth. In my eyes, at least. In our eyes. So I was always up front. And I was choosing the routes that we would take. At this stage in the deployment, Mendoza usually walked point behind the sweeper. That job often fell on another third squad member, Jeffrey Lopez. We didn't always agree on the routes that we were going to take. But when we didn't agree, we found an in-between. We didn't argue, we just chose something that we were both happy with. It wasn't so smooth when Mendoza worked with Dutcher. He and Dutcher were good friends, but they'd been on a couple of patrols together as point and sweeper, and it hadn't gone entirely well. Well, we kind of argued a little bit on which route to take. And so he was kind of mad at me. That was the mood between the two of them when they stepped out on patrol that day. I was running point, and he was up at the very front with the metal detector, and uh, we had crossed a couple canals, and then after we had crossed, we passed some trees, and behind these trees was this old abandoned compound, and then I see a farmer there farming, goats and all. I'm like, okay, you weren't there yesterday, but now you're farming? That should have been the first red flag. That's that's like almost an immediate tell. Like this dude was probably up to no good. So I tell Dutcher, hey, Dutcher, let's go over there and talk to this guy. He's like, okay. We enter this guy's field. I start arguing with him. I tell him like, hey, fuck you doing here? He's like, oh, farming. I was like, hey, that's bullshit. What are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm farming. I was like, where, where are the Taliban at? He's like, Nista Taliban. There's no Taliban here. All right. Where are the bombs at? Where are the AEDs at? Boom, I checked today. He's like, Nista, Nista, there's no bombs here. I was like, bullshit. There's fucking, there's probably some AEDs right there. Where are they? He's like, no, there's no bombs here. I was like, okay. 
Well, then walk us right through there. He's like, no, there's, there's probably bombs there. It's like, okay, you fucking piece of shit. Mendoza had just caught him lying, and he says this should have been another red flag. He ordered the man to lead the squad through the field. He's like, no. I was like, no, you're walking through. I told Dutcher, hey, Dutcher, follow this guy. He's going to walk us through this area right here that we're making him walk through these IED routes, like where we suspect there to be IEDs. Because he says there's none, but then he says there is. We're walking him through that. And we start following. This dude starts off right in front of us, right in front of Dutcher. Now he starts walking faster. And we're right behind him. And then he speeds up to the point where we start kind of playing catch up. We kept following him. The most, the obvious fucking tell. Last red flag. It should have been when he jumped over a fucking berm. This little, this little area next to a wall. He steps over it very carefully. Dutcher follows. That's the last thing I remember. Other than dust. I'm looking at Dutcher, he's right in front of me, and then the whole world turns brown. And then black. The next thing I know, I got my hand on his... on his flak, and I'm pulling him out of this crater. And he's just covered in dust. His leg is destroyed. He's got a hole on his pelvis. Giant hole. And everything's brown except for that hole. It's black and it turns red. Bright red. <laughs> All in just a matter of seconds. I start working on him. Put pressure on that wound. Start applying tourniquets. And it felt like an eternity before the medic got there. We start working on him. Working, working, working. Just putting it together as best we can. We're working on him. We know he's in pain. Let's start trying to look him in the eye. Talk to him. Is he always doing? <laughs> Everything we can do, we're doing it. <laughs> Start telling me he's going to make it. He's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. 
gonna be fine. He's gonna be fine. I don't know how we've... Let's pull the, the picture of his mom, his brother, and Rachel. He's looking at the picture. Left a little, you're gonna make him in. You're gonna go home to him. Scream at him, screaming his name. Just stay with us, stay with us, man. Just stay with me, Dutch. Helicopter finally arrives. Load him up on the helicopter. We had a pulse. So, we're like, we got him. He's good, he's going home. We got him. I hold his hand and tell him, bye, Dutchie. I love you. And then you fly away. It was only after the bird took off that Mendoza realized he was wounded, too. He took shrapnel to his leg and arm, and he was disoriented and felt like throwing up. The squad was worried enough that they wanted to medevac him, but Mendoza refused. Then on the way back... We get radio traffic. Dutcher's status has changed. He's gone from critical to hero status. Dutcher had died on the bird. He left behind his twin brother, Tim, his fiancée, Rachel, and his mom, Teresa. That's it, man. That's my what if. So what's the what if? What if I would have shot the dude right then and there? After every single fucking red flag. It's four times I should have killed him. What if I just told Dutcher, I don't follow this guy. Or Dutcher, stop. Or if I hadn't been there, if I had let somebody else take point. There's plenty of what-ifs, man. So many different ways that could have gone. But it went the wrong way. Those what-ifs rattled around Mendoza's head after he got back to the States and through the rest of his time in the Marines. When he took the uniform off for the last time, the what-ifs followed him to college. He was living the dream that he'd described to me in Sangin, but he felt painfully out of place. Outside the embrace of his Marine family, the what-ifs began to torture him. It was after that point I accepted that it was me. I did it. 
Mendoza didn't just take responsibility for Dutcher's death. He became convinced that he killed Dutcher. It was like my first year in college, pretty much. And nobody got me, man. That transition was hard. You know, going to school, <clears throat> being in a classroom. A classroom just felt totally, totally alien to me. And so I was drinking a lot. I drink a lot, smoke a lot. And one night, you know, I just felt like I gave up. Or actually, I did give up. I was like, Ugh, let's just put it all away now. Let's just put it all away. And I remember I went outside because I didn't want to make a mess inside the uh, inside the apartment. And my Beretta. But for some reason, I just called Fry. With his pistol in his hand, Mendoza called his old squad leader. Yeah, man, he answered the phone. It was like four in the morning. He was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I told him how I was feeling that it was all my fault. That I did it. And he put the blame on himself. And he said, no, I was a squad leader. I was a sergeant. I was in charge of that patrol. And I guess that got to me. Yeah, it got to me and made me... I guess I realized that there are people who care. Because I was feeling the burden. And here is Jarek putting the burden on himself. And it wasn't even him. But here he is trying to take that responsibility. Because he cares. And he was listening. He actually listened. At the most crucial moment, Fry passed the test. And Mendoza says that phone call saved his life. Do you still have the Beretta? No. Good. I have a clock now. <laughs> oh, my God. It's going on 1 a.m., and Mendoza has to work in the morning. He's going to skip the gym, which means he might sleep in till 5. Do you think that you work at the fire station and you hustle, hustle, hustle and try to do so much because you're trying to not so much pay back a debt to society, but you're trying to make up for for these feelings of guilt that you have? Do you think there's a connection between those two things? Possibly. I haven't thought about it. I haven't thought about it like that. Seems There's like, a good chance. There's a chance that might be it. Seems like you don't really let yourself slow down too much. Hmm. As we're packing up, Mendoza shows me something else he keeps on his shelf. Next to the photos of his dead friends. You got three soldiers. Three toy soldiers. Green army that you get in a giant bag. My mom gave them to me. She gave me just three. One for O'Brien, one for McDaniels, and one for Dutcher. One for each of the empty spaces in his soldier's heart. One of them's on watch, one's ready for attack, the other one's just standing by. So, the idea is that they're all looking over. They're watching me, they're protecting. 
not judging. We're just there. I'm just here to make sure that the don't let them down. Next time on Third Squad. I joined to fucking stack bodies. Not in a crazy way. Like, does that make sense though? Like, not in a psycho way of saying that. I don't even see them as people. I really don't. The Taliban or Afghans? The, the, the Taliban. I've shot prairie dogs, like prairie dogs, like mm-hmm. fucking ground rats, mm-hmm. that I've felt worse about shooting. Hmm. I don't give a fuck. It's one, two o'clock in the morning. My phone rings. It's, it's Brian, and we're talking, and everything's good. And then just all of a sudden, I hear a shh, boom, shh, boom, that, 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 that. And Brian says, look, I got to go. Click. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you'd like to see my photographs from Sangin and from our road trip, please visit thirdsquad.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Before we go, if you're having thoughts about suicide or self-harm, please don't wait to get help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to talk to someone now. 1-800-273-8255. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.